Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Brian Candelo. I am not exactly skilled when it comes to construction. It's not really my thing. My only real experience with construction work is when I have gone overseas on a missions trip to places where I would say the building code isn't exactly rigid. (laughs) To places that allow people like me to come over and build structures. That's where I've gone. So I don't really have it all down. I have learned over the years that you you need a firm foundation and I've learned that you need to have materials that are, are good and I've learned that you need to have people that actually know what they're doing to lead this thing, not me. And I've learned that you need to have walls that are true, walls that, you know, go straight up and down. Because oftentimes I've been a part of projects where I've looked at it and I've thought, wow, that's, that looks great. That's close enough. <laughs> right? I mean, it's all, it looks, to my eye, it's straight up and down. But when you allow people like me to do things like that, you end up with structures like this. <laughs> you need to make sure that the walls are True. Now, we live in a world of lasers and levels, and that's a good thing, but it didn't always, that wasn't always the case. You used to use this. You're probably familiar with this if you're over a certain age. This is a plumb line, and this is what you would use because it relies on that unchanging thing we call gravity. Gravity is always going to pull this down, and this is a way that you can tell if your walls are true, if they are vertically straight up and down, vertically level. Now, a plumb line is mentioned all throughout Scripture, lots of different places. One place in particular is in Amos, the book that we're going to study this morning, Amos chapter 7. Amos says, I saw the Lord standing beside a wall that had been built using a plumb line. He was using a plumb line to see if it was still straight. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I answered, a plumb line. And the Lord replied, I will test my people with this plumb line. I will no longer ignore all their sins. When you see a plumb line in scripture, it means that God is talking about a standard that he has set up. Now, it's not just some kind of arbitrary set of rules that God has set for us. God has set a standard for us to live by because it's the best possible way for us to live. God has given us this way to live, and he wants us to live according to his standard because he knows that if we don't, if we don't live that way, and if we end up crooked, that we're going to fall. And so God is relentlessly calling us back to his standard. And we're going to see that as we begin studying the minor prophets. We're kicking off a new series this morning called Text Messages, Minor Prophets with Major Messages. Now, we're going to study the minor prophets. It's the last 12 books of the Old Testament. It's those books somewhere between Psalms and Matthew. They're the ones that we don't quite know everything about. Uh, We're not even sure the order that they're in or the pronunciation of the names. We just know if we flip fast enough, we'll get to the New Testament. That's what we're talking about, the minor prophets. Now, they were named minor by St. Augustine just because of the length of them. They're not minor in message, just minor in length. They're not as long as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. That's why they're called the minor prophets. And we are going to see some common themes As we jump into this series, there's going to be some threads of continuity that we see every time. You're going to see that the minor prophets were not popular. People didn't like what they had to say most of the time. 
Um, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 10. This is people speaking of the prophets. It says, they tell the seers, stop seeing visions. They tell the prophets, don't tell us what is right. Tell us nice things. Tell us lies. That's interesting, right? Hey, prophets, don't tell me what's right because what's right isn't the way I'm living. Just tell me what I want to hear. Tell me nice things. Lie to me, please. And so you're going to see the minor prophets weren't exactly popular. You're also going to see this plumb line. You're going to see it all throughout the minor prophets. You're going to see God saying, come back to this standard I've set up. I want to make sure you guys are true and living correctly. So come back to this standard. And you're going to see oftentimes the judgment of God. Because God takes sin seriously. Holiness matters to God, but you're also going to see the amazing love of God. And you're going to see this thread of hope. All throughout the minor prophets, there's hope. All throughout the minor prophets, God is calling us back to him. He's saying, come back to me and live. And we're going to see those themes throughout. Now, this morning, we're going to jump into the book of Amos. And by way of background for the book of Amos, I'm going to show you a video. There's a, a group called the Bible Project out of Portland, and they've made some introduction videos to the minor prophets. And this one's about Amos. So this is just part of the video. It's about two and a half minutes long. It'll give us all the background we need. The book of the prophet Amos. Amos was a shepherd and a fig tree farmer who lived right near the border between northern Israel and southern Judah. Now, the north had seized its independence about 150 years earlier. Remember 1 Kings chapter 12? And it was currently being ruled by Jeroboam II, a successful military leader. He won lots of battles and new territory for Israel, and he generated lots of wealth. But in the eyes of the prophets, he was one of the worst kings ever. His wealth had led to apathy, and he allowed idol worship for the gods of Canaan, which in turn led to injustice and the neglect of the poor. And it got to the point where Amos could couldn't take it anymore. He sensed God calling him to go trek up north to Bethel, an important city that had a large temple, and start announcing God's word to the people. And this book is a collection of his sermons and poems and visions uttered over the years. They were compiled later to give God's people a sense of his divine message to the northern kingdom. And it's a message we still need to hear today. The book has a fairly clear design. Chapters 1 and 2 are a series of messages to the nations and Israel. Then chapters 3 to 6 are a collection of poems that express Amos' message to the people of Israel and its leaders. Chapters 7 through 9 contain a series of visions that Amos experienced that depict God's coming judgment on Israel. Let's just dive in. So the book opens with a series of short poems that accuse all of Israel's neighbors of violence and injustice. And this is kind of odd because the book's opening line said that Amos was going to speak against Israel. But watch how this works. As Amos is naming all of these neighboring nations, you can go look at a map and see that he's creating a circle. And when he's done, Israel lies right in the center, like a target in the crosshairs. And on Israel, Amos unleashes a poetic accusation that's three times longer and more intense than any of these others. He accuses Israel's wealthy of ignoring the poor and allowing grave injustice in their land, specifically by allowing the poor to be sold into debt slavery and then going on to deny any of these people legal representation. And this, Amos asks, is this the family that was once denied justice and enslaved in Egypt? The family that God rescued from oppression and slavery? The party's over, Amos says. God is done putting up with you. All right, Amos says the party's over. 
which is from Amos chapter six, verse seven, where he says, all your parties will end. God's going to deal with you. Now, if Amos could send a text message to the northern kingdom, and if we were included in that group message, which would be awful, by the way, because we know how bad group messages are, uh, especially one to a nation. Actually, Amos rails against group messages in there, so it's one of the major sins he talks about. (laughs) Here's what he would say. Here's what his text message would say. There is no such thing as invisible righteousness. Righteousness must be expressed by justice. Amos would say, you can't have righteousness and not have it show up in your life. It's gotta show up places and it has to show up in issues of justice. You see, their righteousness had been replaced by ritual And their social responsibility had been replaced by greed. And we're gonna talk about those two things. We're gonna talk about righteousness and justice. And righteousness is most often the quality of an individual. And justice is most often the quality of a community, of a society. Righteousness is inner peace. Justice is peace for the community. And Amos is saying, you guys are missing the mark on both of these things. And God is trying to call you back to the standard that he set. He's trying to call you back to that plumb line. Now, before we jump into the text, we have to understand that Amos looked through the lens of wealth when he looked at these two things. Because wealth was a distinct issue during this time. It's usually not for the Israelites. Israel is usually the poor kid. But for this period of time, Israel was the rich kid. You see, the two major superpowers of the day were Egypt and Assyria. Egypt and Assyria were busy with matters within their own borders, and so Israel was free to expand, and they controlled major trade routes. And what that did was that just created wealth among their nation, but it also created a false sense of security. You see, when things are going well for us economically, we assume that that means God is smiling on us. When things are going well economically, we assume that this means God approves of our policies and procedures, that this is somehow God's stamp of approval, that we have his favor, that it's confirmation that the way we're living is the right way to live, but that was not the case. And quite honestly, wealth is what makes Amos so meaningful to us today. The fact that he looks through these issues through the lens of wealth makes it meaningful to us because we have an issue with wealth as well. And not the fact that we want more of it, but the fact that we are wealthy. And I know advertising has conditioned us to always think that there's something else that we need and there's something else that's going to fulfill us. But we as a nation are wealthy. We are wealthy people in comparison with the rest of the world. The government has... uh, decided on a poverty line, what it means to live in poverty. And if you live at the poverty line in America, that still puts you in the top 15% of wealth in the entire world. If you're at the poverty line here in the States, we are a wealthy people. And that causes its own set of problems and its own set of complaints. I want to put our problems in a little bit of perspective this morning by showing you this video. I hate when my phone charger won't reach my bed. I hate when my leather seats aren't heated. When I go to the bathroom, 
and I forget my phone. Let me the radio on the machine at the end, you come to something. I hate it when my house is so big. I need two wireless waters. When my Megan makes my hot water taste too cold. When I have to write my maid a check, but I forget her last name. I don't want to message in the I internet. I hate it when I tell them no pickles, and they still give me pickles. Now, admittedly, that's an awkward video, isn't it? Because there's this sense of, oh, he's going to show us something funny, and we're going to laugh at it. And then we watch it, and we go, that's awful. That's us. That's kind of what we complain about. I mean, I know we have legit problems, and I'm not saying that. We have some very real problems. But oftentimes, I feel like I live in the middle of an emergency room, and I'm complaining about a paper cut. That there's all this really bad stuff going on, and I'm like, oh, this is, this is awful. I have it so hard. See, our wealth sometimes just changes the way we view things, and I think it's the same way that it did for them. Oftentimes, wealth can diminish your need for God because you have so many of your needs taken care of that you can kind of just keep going through the motions with God, but you're really taking care of the rest of the stuff. And Amos is saying, you know what? Your righteousness is suffering because of that. And oftentimes, wealth doesn't make you more generous, it makes you more greedy. The more wealth you have, the more you feel like you have to kind of control that and wrap your arms around it. And it happens with us, and it was happening with them. And so Amos was saying, guys, we gotta work on righteousness, and we have to work on justice. There's no such thing as invisible righteousness. It's gotta be expressed in justice, and you need to work on both. We're gonna jump into Amos. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Amos chapter five, right there in the middle of the book of Amos. And if you wanna just grab a Bible from the pew, if you're one of those people that are like, I don't, Amos, I thought that was cookies. You just, page 1440, uh, you can turn to that and leave it there. Now, as I was prepping for this message, I kept thinking, how does a fig tree farmer, I don't even know what that is, uh, and shepherd, leave his country and go to an entirely new country and get God's message out to people. Before the age of Facebook Live and Instagram and social media and the news and all that kind of, how does Amos go to the northern kingdom and even get his message heard? Uh, it's so curious to me. Now, does he go up there and he just says inflammatory statements? Does he just say stuff so that people know, like Amos chapter four, verse one? He says... <laughs> This is true. He says, listen to me, you fat cows. And he was talking to the women. It's there. And I hope that's not the only thing you remember from this service. Some of you are looking it up right now, like, I just found my new favorite verse. <laughs> do you say something like that? Do you go to the temple? And do you, where the crowd is coming in and the people are coming to worship, there's some great calls to worship in the Old Testament. Psalm 95 is one of them. It just says, come and let us worship and bow down and kneel before God and offer sacrifices. And Amos chapter four, it's almost like he parallels this call to worship, the real one, with his one of what God's saying. He's saying, go ahead and offer sacrifices to the idols. 
Keep on disobeying. Offer sacrifices each morning. Bring your tithes every three days. Present your bread made with yeast as an offering of thanksgiving. Give your extra voluntary offering so you can brag about it everywhere. This is the kind of thing you guys love to do. Can't you see him there calling out as they're going into worship? Yeah, go ahead. Keep sinning. Keep disobeying. Keep bragging about your good deeds everywhere. God is going to get your attention. Amos chapter five, starting in verse 18. It says, what sorrow awaits you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here, you have no idea what you are wishing for. People who are saying, oh, I just wish God would come back and God's like, no, you don't. You really don't. You're not, you're not living according to that standard. You don't wish I would come back right now. Look at verse 19, it says, in that day you will be like a man who runs from a lion, only to be met by a bear. Escaping from the bear, he leans his hand against a wall in his house, right? He's finally home and he's bitten by a snake. God's saying, you know, the more you run from me, the more you're gonna run into me. You're not gonna get away with this. Yes, the day of the Lord will be dark and hopeless without a ray of joy or hope. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice and an endless river of righteous living. I wanna see justice and I wanna see righteousness. Righteousness is just truthfulness. Righteousness really just means the way that we would live if God was the king over every area of our lives. How would we live if God truly reigned and ruled in every area of our lives? That's what righteousness is. And he said theirs was lacking. You see, what they'd done is they had just taken all, everything that, they worship God with all this stuff with rituals and traditions, and they just crammed it alongside uh, worshiping other things. They take in the Canaanite god of Baal, and they begin worshiping Baal, and Baal is just associating gods and goddesses with forces of nature, and then you just basically offering things to those gods and goddesses so that you can placate them and please them. To worship Baal, there was no moral requirement. There was not a plumb line at all. There was no standard. You could live however you wanted as long as you made these sacrifices to these people, to these gods and goddesses. And then they grabbed gods of the Assyrians and they said, well, if the Assyrians invade, then we might as well be worshiping their gods when they come in and that'll be a good thing. And, and then um, they built two uh, temples and put golden bulls there so that people didn't have to make a pilgrimage. And what happened was, is their worship became diluted. It became crowded out by all of these other things, and their worship of God was shallow and meaningless. It was just done so that they could go through the motions, so they could feel better about themselves, so they could protect their investments, but it didn't really mean anything. Now, I don't think we have a problem with idol worship the way that we think of it in the Old Testament. I don't think any of you have an issue about bowing down to golden bulls. I don't think so, but we do have an issue with worship sometimes because it gets crowded out by other things. Maybe success, 
wealth, stuff, popularity, relationships, politics. Maybe there's certain things that just crowd out your life. And then we ask God, we have the boldness to ask God for strength to continue to worship these other things besides him. God, give me strength to do well, to get money, to be more popular, to become more successful. We ask God for strength to worship secondary gods. And all secondary gods are self-serving. All secondary gods exist to promote ourselves. Is our worship getting crowded out by other things? I mean, that's what he was saying to them. He says in Amos chapter eight, verse five, you can't wait for the Sabbath day to be over and the religious festivals to end so you can get back to cheating the helpless. They couldn't wait for church to be over. Thankfully, we don't ever feel that way. Why are you laughing? Right? We do. We've been there, bodily present, but mentally checked out. I mean, what is it that we're thinking about when we come to a place of worship? Are we truly thinking about worshiping God? Are we truly thinking about connecting to him? Are we truly thinking about how we can adjust our lives to the way that he wants us to live? Or are we thinking about what's for lunch today? Or are we thinking about, I wonder what the score of the game is right now? or the deal that we have going, or the, the stuff with, so I can get a bigger house, or I can get that. And, you know, I have my Bible on my cell phone, like a lot of you do, and it's very convenient to be in church and to be looking at the Bible slash checking the fantasy scores, right? I mean, maybe some of you are playing Madden Mobile right now, I don't know, but what is it that we think about when we come to a place of worship. I think it says a lot about us. You see, Amos was saying for you guys, it's all all show, but there's no substance. And God is going to get your attention. He doesn't want the show. He wants an endless river of righteous living. And he also wants that to be expressed by justice. You see, Amos is all about justice. Amos couldn't divide his faith from his social responsibility. He said, if you are living righteously, then it has to be expressed by you dealing with issues of justice. Justice is peace for the community. We at Salem Alliance, we say we wanna be a city at peace with God. Peace isn't just the absence of conflict. Peace is also the presence of justice. It's the way things would be if Jesus were truly here as the physical king of this city, the way things would be. That's what we're to work towards. That's what he longed for. But the Israelites weren't doing that at all. The wealthy weren't just ignoring the poor, they were actively abusing the poor. It says all throughout Amos some of their misdeeds. Well, it says they had summer homes and winter homes and there was ivory everywhere. It even talks about ivory beds, which just sounds horribly uncomfortable. Chapter two, it says they sell honorable people. They sell people for silver. They sell poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. At their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing their debtors put up as security. In the house of their gods, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. Chapter eight, it says they they rob the poor, they trample down the needy. 
Their wealth had caused them to be greedy and it created massive injustice. And they didn't even see it. Sometimes I wonder if we see it, if I see it. Oftentimes we look at helping the poor under the heading of charity and if we don't help the poor and if we're not charitable, then we're just stingy. But God sees it as unrighteousness God sees it as injustice. So many times in scripture, the wicked and the upright are contrasted. And oftentimes, the wicked are portrayed as seeing their resources for only themselves, and the upright see their resources as belonging to the community. That's why we had the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament, which helped the poor. It had so many different things in place to free slaves and to cancel debts and to allow people, poor people, to live among the community. It had so many things that said, take care of them. Even in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8 and 9, it says this, God will generously provide all you need. Now that's interesting, right? It doesn't say all you want. God's gonna provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, and this is a reference to Psalm 112, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. Good deeds, literally that word is righteousness. Their righteousness will be remembered forever. You're righteous when you share generously with the poor. But as you look at that, and you might get stuck at the same spot I get stuck at. Plenty left over. Because I don't feel like I ever have plenty left over. I always feel like I have just not enough. And I'm paralyzed by that phrase, what if I need that? Right, I would be generous, but what if I need that? I would help the poor, but what if I need that? I have clothes, honestly, in my closet that are over 20 years old. And not because I hope that they come back around again or I'm saving for some kind of retro party that somebody's gonna throw. But because of this idea, what if I need that? I've worn that shirt once in 20 years, but what if I need that? And what good would it do anyway if I gave it away? You know, it's just such a small thing. And I think that we think of justice issues that way, that how could I possibly make a dent in that issue? You know, if you pour yourself into business, oftentimes you can see a return on your investment. If you pour yourself into physical fitness, hopefully you can see that your body is changing somewhat. But if you pour yourself into justice issues, you don't always see results because it's such a big thing. How could I possibly make a dent? Here's the thing, God's probably not calling you to end poverty, but he is calling you to help a poor person. God's probably not calling us to figure out world hunger, but he is calling us to feed hungry families. God's probably not saying, I want you to go overseas and stop the wars that are going on, but he is saying, guess what? There's refugees coming to you that you can love on and that you can provide for. 
You may never get the opportunity to preach the gospel to the world, but you can do it to your neighbor and you can do it to people in your community and you can go somewhere else and share the love of Jesus and you can send other people those ways. We have to start thinking of justice as something that we can be a part of and that we can help. There's so many justice issues around us. And Amos, he looked at them and he said, you don't even care about it. You're causing the problem. You're living unrighteously and unjustly, and God is going to get your attention. And that's a good thing. Here's the thing, we can't separate the judgment of God from the grace of God. God pursues us, he gets our attention because he loves us. Can you imagine if he didn't? Can you imagine if God didn't wanna get our attention? when we weren't living according to his standard. God wants to refine our character and reshape our personalities and reorder our priorities. That's why he continues to call us to this standard. He continues to call us to repentance. Amos 5, verse four, it says this, come back to me and live. That's the call we see. All throughout the minor prophets, you'll see this thread of hope. The last four or five verses in Amos is this thread of hope. He says a couple times, come back to me and live, come back to me and live, because God promises the king is coming back. The king will return and the land will be healed. And so you need to come back and live. Now, what does this mean for us? What can we do about it? You know, if the text message is, there's no such thing as invisible righteousness, that you just can't have righteousness and it doesn't show up and it has to be expressed in justice, then how do we live those two things out? I read an interesting article this past week. It was written by a, a lady who studied people who rescued Jews during World War II. And it, it was just fascinating. There were 700 million plus people in Germany and the surrounding countries and only a few thousand of them stepped up against this injustice. And so this article was written to find out why they did it, what were the links, what were the common threads. Now there's a huge diversity among the people. Uh, socially, professionally, from whatever country and upbringing. All of those things were different, but there were some common threads. I wanna look at three, three things that we can work on. First, I would label authentic faith. Now, the author of this article didn't use that term. I would use that term because here's what she said. It was a gradual increase in the belief that they had to live what they knew to be true that they had this, I have to live out what I know to be true. I would say that's authentic faith. And so I would ask you this question. Are you living out what you know to be true? Or is our worship just show and ritual and tradition? You see, we can't truly change the world until we have been truly changed by Jesus. And we need to continue to live that out, what we know to be true. And so we ask for the strength of God in our lives to do that. The second thing this article said was that people who were rescuers were people who actually saw other people, which sounds simple, right? But the, the author was saying what it was was they saw through the noise, they saw through the labels, they saw through the propaganda, and they saw people as God's people, God created these people, God loves these people, and we need to be a part of that rescue. 
We need to help stop this injustice. See, we usually tend to think of it's, it's us and them, but there is no them. There is only us. It's not me and you, it's we. We are this church, we are this city, we are this community, we are this culture, we create the culture, we are the problem. And Lord willing, we are part of the solution. And we have to begin seeing people, actually seeing people, people who have unique stories that have shaped them, people that God loves dearly, people that Jesus gave his life for. And so instead of just driving by or writing people off or living maybe a narrative that we grew up with about a certain group of people or a certain ethnic group, how do we see people for who they really are? The third thing that this article said was that eventually you have to assume responsibility. People that were rescuers, people that stood up, assumed responsibility. The article said that the passivity of the majority was crucial to the success of the Third Reich. What they counted on was the majority being passive. Maybe you're familiar with the bystander effect. The bystander effect is this social psychological phenomenon that says this, help is inversely proportional to the number of people in the surrounding area, which means this, the more people there are, the less likely help will come. Because everybody's thinking the same thing, right? What are we all thinking? Somebody else will do it. Somebody else will do it. Somebody else with a little more money will do it. Somebody else with a little more education will do it. Somebody else who lives in those neighborhoods will do it. We are the somebody else. We have to assume responsibility for these justice issues. And so I would say this. We need to become humble servants and students of our community and our world. If you aren't serving somewhere, it's, it's time to jump in and serve. If you aren't giving towards something like that, it's time to do that. What this coming week, would you pray about it? Would you pray about God, what injustice issue can I lean into, can I be a part of? God says, I don't want the show. As a matter of fact, I hate the show, I hate the acting. I wanna see a mighty flood of justice and an endless river of righteous living. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thanks for your word. And Jesus, um, forgive me. Forgive me when worship of you has just turned into ritual. Forgive me for going through the motions. for constantly being caught up in me and not you. So I ask for forgiveness for that. Forgive us, God. And God, I just pray the blessing of courage over this congregation, courage to stand up against injustice, courage to see people, courage to act, that you would use us in this place to be a part of that mighty flood. And Jesus, also that you are known also that we bring glory to your name. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at 
prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.